When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, AP Gov. Welcome to the Unit One Study Guide for the Foundations of American Government and Federalism. So, um, you have the Study Guide, uh, the Google Doc. It's on E Class. If you have not checked it or gotten that, you can download it and you can take notes as you want to, or you can just listen. Uh, you know, it's up to you. Uh, I don't require anything. I don't take this up. So it's completely up to you. Uh, let's get going. All right, so the first topic up there is James Madison and Fed 10. So you just need to remember that James Madison is one of the, the biggest contributors to the Federalist Papers. And uh, he is going to, to write mostly in response <coughs> excuse me, to anti-Federalist problems and issues and concerns that they expressed. Uh, Fed 10 is one of those. All right. And so the, the problem or the concern is the groups or the factions. Um, factions, James Madison writes, is going to happen. There's no way for any government to stop people from grouping up to becoming factions, to kind of gravitating to whoever it is or whatever topic or whatever area they're going to gravitate to. Just people are going to become uh, part of those groups. The concern with the small states, so not just like small states, but states in general versus the nation. All right. The concern was that these groups could potentially take control, take power with the majoritarian democracy. All right. Remember that from way back in the, the very beginning of our semester, uh, that these groups could take control and then they would become the majority and they would rule as they want to. So let's say some religious group gets the majority. They get the majority vote. They win the, the legislative seats. They win the leadership, the governor's seat, or whatever it might be in these uh, states, and then they could do what they want to. So now you get into that majority versus minority thing we had talked about, where, okay, the majority party, you know, for us, it's important to, to, to rule, but you, got, you can't completely ignore the minority party. Madison is writing about this fear, though, that the majority party in the small states and the, the small republics could potentially become a majoritarian democracy and rule as they want to. And his argument is, okay, this could happen in the small republics, in the states, but our large national government, our large central government, the nation as a whole, we it won't happen because no one group will become the majority. There'll be too many groups and they'll keep each other in check. So that's the whole argument that Madison writes in Fed 10. Next topic is impeachment. Now, impeachment that we touched on very briefly uh, a while back uh, in the class. And uh, just, you know, remember the process. This is something that the, the legislative branch has on the other two. Uh, <clears throat> and they can uh, impeach federal officers. That includes the president, includes Supreme Court justices. Uh, they do not impeach each other. Though. All right. But impeachment is pretty simple. Uh, anybody in the House of Representatives can draw up articles of impeachment. So some people have some articles of impeachment drawn up right now on Joe Biden. Uh, they would just wait for or need the, the go-ahead for
from the uh, Speaker of the House to, to proceed. Anyways, you draw them up. It's basically the charges that you are accusing the president or the, the judge or whoever uh, of. So you write it up. President Biden did this, this, and this. Okay, these are the official charges. Uh, once the speaker okays them, they're presented to the full house. There's some talk and discussion about them. Uh, there might even be a hearing about them where you collect evidence to, uh, and then the group will have a vote. Okay, uh, a simple majority in the house. So a majority of 435, it's like 218 or something like that, uh, says yes, then that person has been impeached. It then goes to the next step, which is the Senate holding a trial. And they'll hold a real trial with witnesses and evidence and all that kind of stuff. And then the Senate act, acts as a jury and they'll make a vote. You need two thirds on the Senate side uh, to be convicted and removed from office. Have not had a president convicted and removed from office yet. All right. Next up is federalism. And overall, remember that federalism is the sharing of, of power or authority uh, over people by the state and the national government. Uh, and then we got into the different types and, and the money. So first up, the grants. Remember, overall, the grants uh, is just the aid that the uh, federal government sends to the states. Now, it's important because the states are heavily reliant on that aid, that money, and they now will kind of listen to the federal government because they don't want that money to dry up. All right. Uh, so that's one of the, the enticing things for the states to, to do what the federal government says, to enforce some of the policies and laws that the federal government passes. So that's the grants. So you got the two types. You got categorical and block. Categorical is the more restrictive of them because these are the ones that typically come with strings attached and and that can mean one of a couple of things it can mean hey this has got to be spent in this area on this specific specific uh topic all right or this specific area or it comes with hey if you do this if you enforce this law then we'll give you this money so categorical are the ones that the states don't like because it kind of takes away some of their power, some of their authority because the money is earmarked for specific things or is tied to specific things that they have to do in order to earn the money or keep the money. We talked about the drinking age is one of those things. Then you got block grants. Block grants are freer. All right. So the block grants, this is the money that the states get and they have to spend in a certain area. So still, you know, states don't get to just go out and spend the money they get from the federal government wherever they want to. There are some some restrictions placed on pretty much everything. Uh, but the block grants, you know, the money goes to a specific area and then the states can do with it what they want. So here's some money for parks. Well, what's that mean? Do we build new parks? Do we upgrade the old parks? Do we order new uh, playground sets? Do we put in new trails? You know, what do you want to do? Well, the money is open. It's up to you. All right. Uh, welfare is a block grant because here's the money states. You run the program how you want to. And so they get to to do what they want to with that money, as long as it's being spent within the welfare realm. Okay, uh, dual and cooperative federalism. You might also see it as layer cake and marble cake. So dual slash layer cake federalism. This is where the the state and the national government will kind of stay in their areas, stay in their lanes. They don't mix. There's no working together. All right. The feds are not coming over and seeing how the state's doing. The state's not coming over and seeing how the federal government employees are doing uh, in these, whatever the, the, the areas are. Okay. Now in class, I use the examples of the military and education. So, 
military is a federal thing. There is no state military. There is no state involvement in the military. The, the, the state has no say-so. You know, they have bases here in Georgia. There's bases in every state. Uh, the states don't do anything with those bases. Then cooperative or marble cake, that is going to be where there is an intermixing. All right. So uh, you might not know who is doing what. In class, I used the example of the airport. You have the TSA down there, but you also have state and local police that are trying to protect. Okay. Uh, right now, we just had a hurricane that hit Florida. Uh, on Thursday, uh, Wednesday, excuse me, today's Thursday. Uh, on Wednesday, you're going to have the federal emergency relief people down there working and helping. You're going to have the state emergency people down there working. You're not going to know who you're getting help from. Many years ago now, uh, I-85, uh, the interstate that runs down through Atlanta, major highway, the bridge, one of the bridges burned, all right, um, and shut down 85 for a while. The feds came in to help because they recognized this is an important road. we got to get this thing fixed fast. And so the feds were there, and so was the state. If you went down there to see who was working, you wouldn't know who was doing what because of cooperative federalism. They had mixed together, uh, and they were both working together to get this thing done as fast as possible. All right, the amendment process, <clears throat> remember, it's a two-step process. You've got the national level and the state level. All right, so at the national level, that's where the proposal happens. So the federal government... Congress typically, or we could go outside of that and have a national convention proposed by a group of states. However, we've never done this, so we typically just rely on Congress. But anyways, they propose the amendment. So uh, I'm in Congress one day and like, you know what, I feel like proposing an amendment. So I stand up and I propose an amendment. It's not that informal, uh, but hopefully you get the idea that anybody in the House or the Senate can propose an amendment. We will talk on it, discuss it, we'll have a vote. All right. Uh, if two thirds of my fellow Congress people, that's both the House and the Senate, say yes to my, my proposal, then it moves on to the next step. If less than two thirds say yes, then it dies. All right. But that's the first step is the proposal. The second step is the ratification. Ratification involves the states. The state legislatures will get this bill or excuse me, this amendment once it's been passed by the House and the Senate. And they'll have seven years to talk, discuss, debate. They don't typically use seven years. They'll, if, they, if it gets there, they'll get it done pretty quickly. Uh, but they do have that time. Anyways, the states talk, discuss, they'll vote. If they say yes, then they're in the yes box. If they say no, they're in the, the no box. You need three-fourths or 38 uh, yeses in order to have an amendment become a piece or part of the Constitution. All right. Okay, uh, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's pick up with the weaknesses of the articles. So uh, I want to first off address how this question is going to be set up. Now, I call it a table question. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the official way uh, it's looked at. But basically, uh, you'll have the weaknesses of the articles in one column, and you'll have the constitutional fixes in the other. All right. And you'll have to pick out the correct row that has the correct match. So uh, if it has a weakness of the articles was they could not coin money. And then in a fix for the Constitution, it says they took control of the military. That's not a correct row. Okay, so you're going to go through the rows and you're going to find the one that has the correct weakness with the correct fix. And the next couple questions are like that. Federalist versus anti-federalist. Uh, I think Republican and representative democracy might be that way as well. There's a couple on the test. All right, so there's a couple on the test. All right, so first up, the weaknesses of the articles. Now, we spent a lot of time uh, going through and detailing 
the weaknesses of the articles. We went through, we looked at the examples of, hey, this is what's happening, this is what's going on, and then this is how the Constitution is going to fix those things. So hopefully you feel pretty good and you're pretty familiar with this. Y'all did pretty good on the FRQ uh, that we wrote on this. All right. Uh, but a couple of the weaknesses, and I'm going to try and be as quick as possible, not go through all the different examples. First off is the money thing. All right. Uh, under the articles, remember, the Congress could not collect taxes. They could not collect money of any sort, although they owed a ton of money because it was put on them to pay that stuff back. Uh, remember, there was no military. All right. Uh, remember, it took 9 out of 13 and 13 out of 13 uh, to pass a law or amend the Articles of Confederation. And you had one state per vote, or one vote per state, excuse me. All right. Um, <clears throat> there was no president. There was no court system. All right. Uh, and then the Constitution fixes all these. Article 1 is going to give uh, Congress a lot of power. All right. They're the only ones that can coin money. They're the only ones that can control the military. They're the only ones that can control interstate commerce. They can control foreign commerce or foreign trade. Um, you have an executive with Article 2. You have a court system now with Unit 3. Uh, not Unit 3, but uh, Article 3, excuse me. Um, they fixed the problem of one vote per state uh, with the, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, you have now no longer 9 out of 13 and 13 out of 13 to get an amendment done. Uh, you have uh, a lot of fixes that happen with the Constitution. Just once again, just remember and recall, you know, we snap our fingers and all of a sudden the Constitution is created. It took a while to write the document and it took a while to get this thing passed because there were problems, there were debates. It wasn't just as simple as, oh, this new government's great and excellent. Let's sign off on it. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, kind of gnashing of teeth that went in to get that thing signed. All right, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists, <coughs> excuse me, that is going to be uh, the big, strong, Central government, the Federalists, versus the let's keep the states as the strong governments, anti-Federalists. All right. And that's the, the biggest takeaway and the biggest thing to remember uh, about the Federalists versus the anti-Federalists. Republic slash representative democracy. So we live in a republic uh, and pretty much representative democracy is the same thing nowadays as a republic. Uh, so this is just the idea that we can't all participate. Remember, participatory democracy. Every single citizen, every person is having a voice or taking part somehow uh, in the governance of their, their areas and their, their lands and laws and all that kind of stuff. We can't do that. So instead, we elect people to make decisions for us uh, on laws and policies and whatnot. So that's all that is. Checks and balances, separation of powers. So going all the way back to the philosophers, we talked about Montesquieu. Uh, and remember, he wrote about the separation of powers. And the fear or the idea here is that um, in the system that Montesquieu and his contemporaries came up in, uh, it was the king. And the king made all the rules, interpreted all the rules, uh, and judged all of them. And Montesquieu will write about how that's unfair. Well, the framers will take that to heart and they'll create a system where we have separate branches that have separate powers. So you have the legislative branch that writes up laws, you have the executive that's going to enforce, and you have the judicial that's going to judge. So we keep the power out of one person's hands. We keep the power out of one group's hands. No one, in theory, can become tyrannical um, unless there's some kind of weird thing happening where they're all working together. All right. Uh, and then the checks and balances are just the watchdog function that each has over the other. 
So if the president sees Congress is getting too powerful, <clears throat> they have the ability to veto. If Congress sees the president getting too strong, they have the ability to impeach. The Supreme Court can declare laws and rules unconstitutional. So they all have these powers over the other. All right, the powers, delegated powers, implied, reserved, and concurrent. So delegated is just another expressed, enumerated, uh, whatever the other one is, I can't, can't even remember. Uh, there's all kinds of names for the powers of the federal government. But delegated powers are just those given specifically to the federal government. So you can go to the Constitution and you can see, hey, Congress can do this. Courts can do this. They're delegated. All right. Implied powers are those powers that come from the necessary and proper clause. So they're not in the Constitution. It doesn't say anywhere in the Constitution uh, that this power is there. But if you read this phrase from the Constitution, we can interpret it to mean this, and we can do this. All right, I know that's very basic and very general, but hopefully you get the idea. It's not written in there anywhere. It's implied that Congress can do this. It's implied that the president can do this. They all use the implied powers. All right, so it's not written in the Constitution, but it's something that we've interpreted to mean that we can't do it. Reserve powers are those left to the state, and let's use it with the Tenth Amendment because that's where it comes from. Uh, basically, the reserve powers, the Tenth Amendment, is just those items that uh, it doesn't say in the Constitution that states can't do it. So, therefore, it is left to the states. All right. So, the Tenth Amendment basically protects states' rights. And as long as the Constitution doesn't specifically deny something, and that's going to be those expressed powers, uh, delegated powers that are, you know, the what forbids the states from doing something, uh, it's left to the states. So it specifically says that Congress is the only one that can declare war. So state cannot declare war on anybody. It's not in the Constitution, or excuse me, it is in the Constitution. Who exactly can do it? Now, marriages, it doesn't say in the Constitution anything about marriages. So there's no federal guidance, there's no state guidance. So it's left to the states to decide. Same thing with <clears throat> education. There's no mention in the education in, in the Constitution about education and who's going to be in charge of it. So it's left to the states. So as long as it's not specifically denied in the in the Constitution, it's left to the states. Concurrent powers. Those are those that they share between uh, the two groups. So both the feds and the states can tax us. Fun, fun. Uh, but that's concurrent powers. Just anything that they can both do that they both share is concurrent. All right, talked about the Tenth Amendment already, so I'm going to go on from there. Uh, all right, the Constitutional Convention compromises. You got the Great, the Three Fifths, and the Compromise uh, Commerce. Uh, I'm going to try and go as fast as possible with these because I feel like y'all are pretty good with these. Uh, the Great slash Connecticut. This is the one that combined the Virginia and New Jersey plan. Remember, the question here was about how are we going to determine how many representatives, how many, basically, how many Congress people the states get in each of these houses. We're not going to get into the whole debate about how they vote on them. Uh, so the decision came down to Virginia versus New Jersey. Virginia plan was popular amongst the large states because they were going to get to hold all the power because it was going to be your representation is based on your population. The more people you had, the more power you had. The New Jersey plan is the equality. Hey, we all need to have the same amount of people. Uh, and so they split up down the middle. And said, well, we have two houses. Let's have one be based on the Virginia plan. 
So the House of Representatives is based on uh, how big you are as a state. And then the New Jersey plan is the Senate. The Senate is equal. Every state has two. Three-fifths compromise came down to the, the question about uh, representation and taxes uh, and how to count the slave population. All right, so now we know that population is going to count for something uh, in the House. And so the states are like, well, wait, we have this whole population of people that we have never counted. We think they should count for representation purposes. But when asked about it for state uh, tax purposes, the states were like, no, or excuse me, the South was like, no, they don't count for that. The North was the opposite. They wanted the slave population to count for the tax purposes, but not for representation purposes. So that's where the debate comes, because they both wanted it uh, their way. Uh, and eventually the three-fifths compromise comes about and says, well, count half, or excuse me, three-fifths of the slave population. Finally is the commerce compromise. Uh, and this gets a little tricky uh, because there's a lot of moving parts to it. First off, it starts off about tariffs and taxes and basically the federal government regulating uh, goods coming into the country. All right. North wants a high tariff because they compete a lot with the, the goods that are coming into the country. And then the South wants a low tariff. They're also fearful that if this goes through and the feds are able to put tariffs and things like that uh, on the imported goods, they'll be able to regulate the slave trade. And so that's where this comes from. Uh, so the South eventually agrees, hey, we will take a step back. We'll ease off the tariff thing, but we want the federal government to not be able to to touch the slave trade for 20 years. And so that was the agreement with the Commerce Clause. Uh, and so 1808 is when uh, Congress was able to start regulating it, and that's also when they uh, outlawed that, uh, the slave trade. All right. Uh, the theories of democracy, remember, uh, for the test, you got to know the pluralists and the elite. Uh, pluralists, remember, that's just the groups, where groups are controlling uh, and getting are trying to get access to the government uh, under pluralist democracy, uh, they are kept at bay by each other. Okay, so they're kept kind of in check uh, by each other, but they are all competing for the interest of the government. Uh, they all want the government to address their issue, their policy concerns, whatever it might be, uh, but the government is not trying to keep everybody happy and the groups are keeping each other uh, kind of in check. The elite is where we are ruled or governed by a small group of people uh, that make all the decisions for us. All right. Okay. We're going to take one last break and I'll be back in just a second. Welcome back one last time. Let's cover the amendments uh, through the evolution. So for the amendments, uh, I got one through 10 on there, but you just need to remember a couple of things. First off, four through eight is going to be the rights of the accused. Uh, that's your due process as an accused person through potential incarceration. You have rights. So you have the Fourth Amendment, uh, no unlawful search and seizure. Fifth Amendment, don't have to talk. Uh, Sixth Amendment, the right to a fair, speedy trial. Uh, Eighth Amendment, no cruel and unusual punishment. So you need to remember that. And then you got the clauses uh, of the First Amendment to recall. That's the Establishment Clause. That says there's not going to be a state-sponsored religion. So there's not going to be a government-sponsored uh, church out there that we have to go to. And then free exercise allows you to worship as you want to, um, with it, as long as you're not doing anything illegal. All right, our two required court cases for this unit are McCullough versus Maryland and Lopez versus uh, You did some case studies on these, so maybe circle back to that assignment if you're unclear with anything. Uh, McCullough versus Maryland, remember that was about the Bank of the United States back in the early 1800s, early part of this country. 
because uh, the states were pushing and trying to see what they could do, basically. What could they get away with? Uh, how far could they push this new government? So uh, the new government had created this bank uh, with the necessary and proper clause and out of the commerce clause, basically saying, hey, we control commerce. We need something to, to deal with commerce. Here's the bank. Maryland tried to tax it. The bank refused to pay. That's why it ends up in the courts. The Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of the federal government, and they're going to use the supremacy clause. So they're going to give that a blue check and say, yes, the federal government is number one. The Constitution is number one. Supremacy clause allows the federal government to do this. Uh, a state institution cannot try and stop a federal institution, cannot tax a federal institution. They also uh, confirmed the necessary and proper clause. And they said, yes, the necessary and proper clause allows the feds to, and specifically Congress, to create this bank out of uh, commerce. Even though it doesn't say in there, in the Constitution, that they can create a bank, it's implied that they can, and that leads to kind of the implied powers um, <laughs> that the, the federal government has. Lopez versus U.S. Um, this is the one where uh, Lopez <coughs> excuse me, brought a gun to school. Uh, some students from seventh period researched it, so shout out to them. Uh, they researched it and they found out he was bringing the gun to school to, to school to sell for like forty four dollars or something like that. Uh, so he gets caught, he gets charged. Um, the federal government comes in and they're going to charge him. And so this is why it's U.S. versus Lopez and not Lopez versus Texas because he was fighting the federal charges uh, of this whole gun free school zone thing. And the Supreme Court is going to agree with Lopez and say, hey, yes, the federal government has overstepped. The federal government really should not be involved here. It's a state issue. It's not a federal issue. And so uh, while the federal government had had a lot of success using the Commerce Clause, uh, they do not in the Lopez case. Now, for both of these, you're going to have to read some snippets uh, from these cases. So just be prepared uh, to read a little bit uh, on them and then make some decisions. It's not going to be as easy as the identify part of the FRQ that you wrote where you just had to identify Commerce Clause. That probably will be probably won't be something you'll do on this test. Brutus, uh, we've already kind of talked about it a little bit, but uh, that's the anti-federalist side of the Federalist Papers. So uh, Brutus is, is writing about all the things that the, the anti-federalists are concerned about. You know, a strong central government is going to, to crush the states and, and all those sorts of things. And, and just they're, they're happy with the states having control. They did, you know, give in to an extent and say, hey, uh, you know, yes, the articles needs to be updated. We need to make some changes to it. They weren't completely on board with blowing up the entire government and creating this new constitution because they were fearful of the constitution. They were fearful of this new government becoming too powerful uh, and tyrannical. And then once again, this is why James Madison wrote so many of the Fed papers uh, along with uh, his other two authors, but they wrote them to counter uh, some of the concerns that Brutus had. All right, the Commerce Clause, pretty, I mean, I say it's pretty simple, but just recall the Articles of Confederation, there was no control by the, the state, the federal government uh, under the Articles to control interstate commerce. The, the, the states were taxing each other uh, and regulating each other on the goods coming to and fro, and the federal government uh, with the Constitution, like, we need to change that. And so they put the Commerce Clause in there, uh, which states that, hey, Congress is the only one that can do uh, the interstate commerce thing, uh, regulate it. Supremacy Clause, same deal, ties back to the Articles of Confederation and its weaknesses. The Articles government was very weak, could not make the states do anything, had no teeth, had no power, had no authority, basically. So the framers like, we're going to put it in there that this Constitution is number one, then comes the federal government. And the Supremacy Clause has been backed up several times 
uh, throughout history, uh, McCullough versus Maryland being one of the first ones. Necessary and proper clause. <laughs> Remember, this is also called the elastic clause, and this is the one that allows Congress specifically, usually, to stretch their powers. Now, we could apply it to the Fed, uh, to the president as well, but typically uh, we use it to to, to deal with it with Congress because it's, it's one of their powers, uh, and it just allows them to be subjective with the well, what's written in the Constitution. And uh, as long as they can kind of work it in there, and if, as long as they can find a, a word or a phrase or something like that. Uh, they probably are going to be able to, to cite the necessary and proper clause and get stuff done. Now, I think I said this in class. Today's Congress doesn't really worry too much about the necessary and proper clause. They just create laws and then they just let the courts decide. So they create the laws and if it gets passed, then it goes out there into the world. If it's a bad law, it'll be challenged and the courts will kick it. So they're just going to go ahead and, and, and make their, their laws as they see fit and then let the courts make decisions. Okay. Uh, finally, the evolution. Uh, remember, this is where the federal government is going to give power back to the state. So it's an idea that the federal government is too powerful, too strong, and they need to turn over some of the responsibilities to the states. Let the states make decisions. The whole idea of federalism, remember, is a shared power between the feds and the state. So let the states trust the states to make decisions. Now, sometimes you can't because there are states that are kind of wild out there. Uh, but that's the idea behind the evolution is let the states make their decisions. Uh, and, you know, it's something that could be done a little bit more because we can always let the courts eventually decide uh, on some of the state decisions. It would bog down the courts a little bit. So I understand why they don't want to uh, give up some control uh, and allow the states to do some of the things that they, they would probably do. But, it, I mean, it would be an option if we could kind of streamline some of the decision-making process. All right, guys, that is the review. If you have questions, if you have concerns, anything like that, reach out to me, email, uh, talking points. I'll be happy to try to respond to you up until about 1030, okay, or so. Uh, I'll probably be asleep, and I won't respond to you until I wake up around 5 in the morning uh, if I see a text or an email or something like that. But feel free uh, to ask questions uh, there. Or if you want to see me in person, I'm here around 620 uh, in the morning. You can always stop by my classroom, Eagle Time, if you have me a later period uh, or just whenever if you have questions, just ask them. All right, guys, hope all is well. Best of luck on the test and I'll see you in class. Take care. Bye-bye.